Welcome back, everybody, to the Cave of Solitude, your pop culture and comic book podcast coming to you from the megacity metropolis of Toronto. I am your host, Eric Anthony, and I'm very, very happy to have with us again back in the cave. I'm so happy it's so soon. It's a movie historian, comic book historian, artist, Mr. Steve Mitchell. Steve, how are you? And welcome back to the show. Uh, I'm I'm just fine, Eric, and I'm, I'm happy to be back with you, I guess, uh, I guess it wasn't too boring last time, and uh, so uh, we're going to do it one more time. Uh, yeah, you know, if, if we had fun having the conversation and even being able to listen back to it, it means most probably other people did as well. So I'm looking forward to so. this one. I, I, I think so. You got you got good stories. Um, I you. <laughs> what, are, what are some of the things that uh, you're currently working on and, and perhaps going to be working on for those who didn't hear the first episode that we did? Uh, would you mind just refreshing our memory for some of the things you've got uh, sure. in the fires? Sure. Well, uh, my comics career is kind of behind me and for the better part of the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, or maybe even longer. I mean, time sort, time kind of gets mushy for me sometimes. And um, what I've been doing is I've been uh, uh, writing, producing, uh, DVD and Blu-ray special features as well as doing uh, a lot of commentary tracks. Um, I do a lot of commentaries for Kino Lorber Studio Classics and um, so that's kind of my film historian side but also as a filmmaker uh, I made a documentary called King Cohen which is a, a feature length documentary about indie maestro Larry Cohen and right now I'm in the beginning production stages of doing a documentary about uh, character actor Wingshauser, which the title would be uh, just a working class actor or a working class actor. We haven't finalized it yet, but the working class actor part will be in there. And then uh, I'm also uh, developing and pitching a documentary about uh, uh, the first wave of comic book fans that became pros and my uh, title for that right now is True Believers. And what makes that maybe a bit more interesting than just your average comics documentary is, uh, I was there when it happened. So a great deal of what happened back in the day, I was present for, or I was around, or I was part of the fabric. Mm. So I have kind of a boots on the ground insight into that world. Uh, because I was in the comic book business then, and I was part of that wave of fans. Yeah. So would you say that um, the, the the True Believers documentary is is almost like you're the Wingshauser of that story, having been <laughs> having been there and seen it all? Well, I saw I saw a lot of it. I don't know if I saw all of it, right. but I knew all the players. I knew the offices. I walked the halls, I walked the walk, I heard the talk. Mm -hmm. And so that just gives me a lot of insight. But, you know, it's in, one of the things that's interesting about doing what we do when, you know, I'm doing either commentaries or, or filmmaking is I know what it was like back in the day, you know, when I talk about a movie that comes out that I didn't make, but one of the things I can do is I can put con give the movie context. I mean, movies have a life of their own, but they were made at a certain time in a certain place. And the audience was different. The way to see movies was different. And so I think even though 
I know when things came out and I know what theaters they played in and I know what the audience response was for the most part, the critical response. Mm-hmm. I realized that generations after me might not know any of that stuff. I made a, I made a really stupid mistake early in my journalism uh, side career where I was talking to Stephen J. Cannell for a video magazine back in the uh, 80s. And I neglected to ask him why the Rockford Files was canceled. I know why the Rockford Files was canceled, but as a journalist, right, up. I mean, I actually uh, had a conversation with Stephen Cannell on the phone, who was very gracious uh, with his time and very warm-natured. I mean, everything I've ever heard about Stephen Cannell is he was like one of the nicest guys in the world, on top of being unbelievably talented. But I should have said, because this is around the time when the Rockford Files was uh, going or had been off the air for a little while. And the Rockford Files was a very big deal in the day. James Garner was a big star. It was, I mean, if you say, name the greatest private eye TV show of the last 50 years, most people are probably going to say the Rockford Files. Maybe some would say Magnum P.I. But from a writing standpoint, I think the Rockford Files maybe is, is the big boy on the block. And I should have said, well, how come NBC canceled a successful show? I didn't do that. Yeah. Now when I do things, I have to put my knowledge of something almost out of the process when I ask a question. I mean, lawyers are always supposed to know the answer to the questions they ask. But journalists, even if they do know that, the question still has to be asked because the audience or the reader or the viewer might not know that. So it's an interesting adjustment. But, um, well, everybody, everybody who listens to your podcast knows who Frank Miller is. Mm. And Frank <laughs> Miller and I were kind of pals in New York. And what we used to do on Friday afternoons, not every week, but somewhat regularly, we would go see action movies together mm-hmm. because we both liked action pictures. And, okay, so I know what it was like to go to a Times Square theater in the middle of the day back in the 70s, and and Times Square barely exists anymore in New York. It's all very touristy. Mm -hmm. But the whole experience of seeing movies at the time, with you know, there was no home vid. Mm -hmm. Or if there was, it was very limited. Cable was around. But if you really wanted to see a movie, you had to see it theatrical. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, when I lived in New York, my neighborhood had HBO in the seventies, but not all of New York city had HBO or cable for years and years to come. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is that you would you know, the quality of the, uh, the elements that would be broadcast would be terrible sometimes. Pardon me. So yeah, if you wanted to see a movie, if it mattered, you had to see it in a theater. Well, today, even if there's a movie I want to see that matters, I might just be lazy and say, well, I'll see it soon soon enough. Different times, different experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think Frank, (laughs) I may have influenced Frank in a very tiny little way. Yes, tell us. With some of the movies that we saw, because he tried to, you know, Frank was very influenced by film, I think. I would, yeah, I think we'd all agree with that, especially since he went to make film. Yeah, but also the thing is he tried to bring a lot of uh, elements of movies right. to his comics work. Mm-hmm. You know, 
we had talked last time about how all the kung fu movies and the samurai movies made a big impact but frank also was into crime films as well and sure. he brought all of that stuff uh, to daredevil right which which took it from I think an okay middle of the road average superhero comic, and I love Daredevil. One of the things that I regret in my in my comics inking career is I never got to work on Daredevil. I would have loved to have worked on Daredevil. <laughs> um, simple costume, lots of black, very dramatic, mostly at night. Mm-hmm. And um, but Daredevil was kind of an okay book until Frank got his hands on it. Yeah, and then introduced ninjas and criminals and machine guns and Uzis and the Punisher, you know, running around like a madman. Um, I mean, I know Jerry Conway created the character with Ross Andrew, but Frank really put his fingerprints on, on, on the character. And I think it's because, you know, he went to go see movies. Um, just to wrap all this sort of up here is, is that, you know, I think every creative person is influenced by what they absorb pop culturally. Absolutely. And Frank loved, Frank loved tough movies, and uh, you know that wound up finding its way into the pages of his comics. When you guys were uh, somewhat frequently going to movies together, what was he working on at the time? Was he working on Daredevil? Yeah, he was. Um, I'm not entirely sure if he had taken over the writing but I know he was working on it. And then I think later on after his run on Daredevil, you know, he got that deal at DC to do Ronan again, bringing the whole, you know, samurai vibe, you know, to the next level. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Frank, Frank was, was a very interesting guy back in those days. And, um, it's, it's interesting how a guy, who came to New York, I think, primarily to draw comics. Yeah. It was very important for him to ultimately write them and and sort of do uh, hyphenate work, which, uh, frankly, there wasn't a whole lot of back in those days. I know that Chapin became a hyphenate eventually. Went, you know, uh, some of the uh, some of the other guys wanted to do the writing of on their stuff. But the whole hyphenate thing was was still more unusual than usual. And it's funny you bring that up because that was actually something that I wanted to ask you. It was on my list of questions was, um, I know that prior to, it's not, it wasn't that it hadn't been done, where the artist was also the writer of, of the project or the work that he was working on at the time. You know, you had Will Eisner, and I know that uh, Joe Simon and Jack Kirby, I think were both artists working on Captain America. Uh, so it wasn't uncommon. But in the 70s, I feel like you get this influx of guys who were artists and then also became as well-known, if not in some cases more well-known as a writer. What was it about that time that you think was shifting where this was happening more? And do you feel, it's a double question, do you feel that it is the um, ideal way to make comics for the artist to also be the one writing it? Because sometimes it doesn't work so well. Um, well, let me see if I can answer both those questions. Uh, I think because a lot of young guys were coming in mm-hmm. and the editorial staffs, I know at DC, Marvel was a bit more rigid. 
but at DC, they were, I think, more open to experimenting and to allow this to happen. Mm-hmm. At Marvel, Marvel had a house look and feel and style in the 70s. And there was, I think, a stronger adherence to that, which was fine because an awful lot of guys love Marvel comics and wanted to do Marvel comics. But then there were some guys who wanted to try and control maybe the nature of the writing. And I have to say that over the last few years, and I think especially during COVID, I've been spending a lot more time on Facebook and I belong to some, you know, like old guys who love comics type pages. And I'm seeing originals and pages themselves from the 60s into the 70s. And I am gobsmacked by the amount of, of balloon copy on those pages. Hmm. I literally, I don't know what I, what it was that I was looking at, but I think I had one of those things. If, if the writer was in the room, I would have said, God, can't you just shut the fuck up? <laughs> it, it, there's so much, so much writing on those pages. You know, yeah. It, it's, yeah. It's not efficient. And look, and Stan Lee, God bless him, was maybe one of the worst offenders. Oh yeah. Oh you yeah. know, if you look if you look <laughs> at those twice up pages that occasionally people, you know, post, and for some reason I I've, I've seen a lot of uh, Iron Man pages penciled by Colin and ink by Jack Abel, which I really like that combo. Um those were twice up pages and they still had a lot of dialogue and, and, you know, a lot of balloon dialogue and you just go, is that really necessary? Mm-hmm. And it's not, I mean, it's, it's interesting when you see work done by hyphenates, um, the writer is serving the artist and the artist is serving the writer as opposed to the artist carving out his turf and the artist carving out their turf. I remember one day being with my buddy, Marty Tasco late Marty Pasco passed away last year. Very sad. No, I knew him for a long time. And very, very interesting guy. I liked listening to him on numerous podcasts. He had a lot of good insights. Marty was a very intelligent guy, very interesting guy. I think sometimes we get a bit carried away, but, but that's, I can say that because we were pals for a long time, <laughs> but he was looking at a, a copy of a comic that he got. I think it might have been a Batman story that Don Newton had uh, had drawn. Right. And he just got to a certain point looking at it, and he threw the comic across the room, and he says he didn't do what I, I needed him to do. Mm. Well, it, it was like Don was there to serve Marty, and Marty had a tendency to overwrite, like so many guys did. I'm not just going to lay it on Marty's feet. I mean, you know, he had a tendency to overwrite. I think Denny... Denny O'Neill of his generation was one of those guys who I don't think wrote as much or wrote as hard. Denny sort of understood what efficiency was. Uh, And that makes sense when you see how he later edited the books that he would become the lead editor on. You see how that translates. He was a very less is more guy. I mean, I worked for him at Marvel and I worked for him at DC and we were friends. And Denny was a less is more kind of guy, even though he had a very strong literary background. Right. He was also, and we talked about this, he was also a big movie fan. And I think he understood, you know, efficient storytelling. 
So anyway, so I think I answered the first part of your question. I think it was the second one was, um, was, was it very common? I, I don't, you know, you asked that question so long ago. <laughs> Yeah, and I was I was saying what what do you think it was that brought that in? Because I think you answered the question quite well about the if the artist is also writing, he's serving himself both ways. And I think uh, for me, I love uh, Walt Simonson's Thor for that very reason. He knows what he's doing, he knows where he's going, and he's taking you on that ride. Um, you know, John Byrne famously did that as well, and a lot of people celebrate his stuff like none other so there is a success rate for for the most part where guys when they do it right it goes really well but what do you think it was in the water that was um having so much of this now occur was it the blue jean era for instance of guys who had well i yeah I, i'm sorry for i sorry no. i'm sorry I cut you off. no i think one of the things that was great about the blue jean era which to me is this the very late sixties and the seventies is that all bets were off in terms of how you had to do comics. Mm. Um, I also think that again at DC, because DC, because they had, they had seven or eight editors as opposed to Marvel who basically had in those days, one kind of line editor, um, and then eventually, I think they were starting to hire more guys to do it because of the workload. But, you know, when guys like Joe Orlando, Dick Giordano, Joe Kubert, and even Archie Goodwin came on and they were editing, these guys were open to experimentation. These guys were open-minded to good storytelling, which sometimes meant a big panel with one word balloon on it. I know you, you look at what Len and Bernie and, and Joe did with Swamp Thing. Sometimes, you know, the whole story was designed for those full page splashes. And sometimes you might have a sound effect or a word or two, but it wasn't a whole lot of, oh my God, look what he's doing. If mm. all of that kind of stuff, which, you know, when you're a kid, that's just the way comics are written. But the older you get, and you have an idea what good writing is, you realize so much of what, I guarantee you, give me any page of a comic from the 60s, especially from Marvel. I, I could literally, and I'm not an editor, but I literally, literally could just cut half of the dialogue off that page and the page would still work. Right. It was so overwritten. Um, it's not like it was bad. It was just, there was a lot of it. And because I come from the art side, even though I'm also a writer, not a comic. I did write some comics, but not much. Um, but I'm also a screenwriter and an animation writer. That think of the greatest moments in a lot of movies that you've ever seen, and there's no dialogue. Right. Yeah. Some of the greatest movies you've ever seen, where you know there's a, there's just a moment where the actor is thinking something, right. and not well. In comics, you have a thought balloon that might go on forever. Right. But spareness and starkness is far more dramatic than a lot of explanation. You think, you know, of, think, think of the Godfather, those, those last two scenes where there's no, just music and dialogue and the camera changes. It's how it, like the, it sits with you forever. There, sometimes there's nothing more important than a close up. 
you know, because you can look into the eyes of an actor or a character and the thinking is more important than the saying or the speaking, you know, sometimes a gesture. There's a great moment. I don't know if you ever saw the Band of Brothers miniseries. No. But there's a great, best, best war movie you'll ever see, even though it's 10, out, 10 episodes in 10 hours. But there's a moment in the main titles where one of the soldiers just takes his helmet off and he just drops it. And he has what they used to call back in World War II, the 100-yard stare. Like he was just shell-shocked. But it, it's, it, it's not quite as comic sounding as that uh, makes it sound. And it was just this incredibly powerful moment because it's in the main titles. I really remember it, but I just said, wow, look at what that says. And I think good comics today, I think a lot of writers are more in touch with the kind of efficiency of an image mm -hmm. and not trying to sort of get in the way of it. Um, I, I, think, I think we talked about this last time, and I think, I think it's worth, worth repeating because it's worth looking at what Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale did when they would collaborate. Yes, yes. A lot of times, you know, Jeff was smart enough to just let the picture do his writing for him. Yes. I think that's what makes for great comics. I think sometimes the more, the more dialogue on a comic book page, the less dramatic it is. Yeah. And but that's... Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of the uh, Silver Age... Marvel uh, books collected that I love to look at them and I want to read them, but I'm always knowing that this to read one issue of Spider-Man that Stanley wrote, it's going to take me a long time to get through one issue. And I, I think I would rather read and, and maybe that it's just part of the generation I'm from of reading today's books that are designed for graphic novels for better or for worse, where, you know, the, the, the fallout of it is that now they can make one issue, what used to be a one-issue story of Daredevil, like I thought Frank Miller, since we brought him up, was a good example of packing a lot of powerful story into one issue where now they spread it over six, which is also can also be a little frustrating. But um, yeah, I, I, don't, I never get that urge necessarily to go and read Stan Lee because I just know it's going to, or even sometimes, and I love it, I do love it, but sometimes Chris Claremont. X-Men, some of the, it's the best X-Men stuff, but that early stuff is like, I get how Kitty Pride knows how to use her powers. <laughs> it's, it's great. Thank you. But this is the 20th time. Well, listen, you got to remember, this is the other thing. It goes back to what I was saying about context. Everything exactly. is of the moment. Exactly. You know, I, I recently saw some John Byrne page that was, you know, written by Chris and I think inked by Terry Austin. And again, I was struck by the, the, voluminous amount of dialogue or word balloon dialogue on those pages. Now, granted, Chris was doing essentially a character drama with the X-Men. Right. And he, and he was very good at it, obviously very popular with the readers. But again, do you have to write that much to get across what you want to say? Now, Stan, and, and I know guys like Lennon Marv and other comics writers, sometimes they would make these sort of very jokey things uh, to sort of take the stink off exposition. They would try and find a way to maybe character up exposition because like, hey, we've got to go to the place to do the stuff which will get us the thing. And then they'll find some way to kind of maybe flavor it 
in, in, in the voice of the character. Right. And that's a trick. I think sometimes, and I think storytelling has evolved tremendously, especially over the last 20 some odd years. I think in film and television, especially in television. Yeah. Um, where that's bled into the other storytelling forms. You know, the whole idea of exposition. Now, every writer on the planet hates exposition. They, they don't want to tell you why. They just want to show you what. Mm. And, and the network said, well, do you think they'll understand that? And I think that's why there's a lot of characters explaining shit. Well, the thing that's really good, especially about network television over the last X amount of years is because they need to have more commercials, they were having less actual running time. So what it did is it forced the writing to become more efficient, less, less expository, and then the quality of the writing almost, and the storytelling sort of gets the exposition in the subtext. And most audiences can track stuff. I mean, look, I like to think I'm a fairly bright guy when it comes to watching things. I don't always understand everything. Mm -hmm. And I realize, well, if I stick with it, it'll shake itself out in the wash and I don't need to know every nuance. I mean, I, I guarantee if you watch the show from the 70s, and I'm not talking like The Rockford Files, which was expertly written, but an average cop show, for example, there's a lot of explaining things. Well, explaining is sort of evaporating, not only in, in, in on the screen, whether it's the small or the big screen, but even in comics. I, I see new comics today and I see, I don't know, some pages might have eight words across the whole page. Mm -hmm. And I go, if the storytelling is good, I said, man, that's great. Right. And I think, getting back to Frank, you know, because I like to pay off my setups from earlier, uh, I think Frank was a guy who really understood that. And, and I think he he really started to bring some of that to bear. And I think that's one of the things that the hyphenates do is they sort of understand the goal of the story and the storytelling, I think, or for the most part, and they're not working at cross purposes with the collaborators. Mm. Yes. Yeah, so do you think when writers and artists do collaborate, there's I've heard two different schools of thought. One was from uh, Howard Chaikin, I heard say it, in a panel with um, Howard Mackey, where Howard Mackey was saying that as a writer, to be kind to my artist, I want to draw what they like to draw or what they're good at and make them happy to draw it. And Howard Chaikin was saying, he goes, we sh that shouldn't be the case. What needs to be drawn should be drawn. If you're an artist, you've got to do what the story needs. And you can't, you can't take away from what your story will need because you, this guy, you're, you don't want him to draw it. And it, I thought it was interesting that it was the artist, the, the hyphenated one who was, if you will, um, that had that opinion. What, what say you as being on, you, you've also written and you've also been on the art side of it? Well, I understand the whole idea of a writer writing to an artist's strengths or passions. I think some of the best, and we, I think we talked about this last time, but it's worth repeating. Mm -hmm. I think some of the best comics ever done were, you know, done for Warren. Uh, the, the first 18 issues of Creepy, the first, I think, 10 or 11 issues of Eerie, and then the four issues of Blazing Combat were all edited by Archie Goodwin, 
or almost all of them were edited by Archie Goodwin. And a lot of them were written by Archie. And Archie always told me that when he was working at Warren, if he would get in a job from somebody, um, he would sometimes either have a script or write a script that would be kind of, as I would put it, down Broadway for that artist. You know, whenever Severin was doing something and it wasn't a war story, you know, Archie would try and maybe make it lean on something more historic. You know, like he would come up with a horror Western story. Um, I think that, you know, when he was writing for Ditko, uh, Ditko, I think, really embraced doing barbarian and other worldly type stories. So that's what Archie wrote. Hmm. Um, he, you know, it goes back to the whole idea of casting. Yeah. And I think that's what made Archie a great writer and especially a great editor is that he knew how to write stories that best suited the artist that was going to get it. That being said, you know, the story is the story and your collaborator is your collaborator. You don't sit there and go, well, so-and-so doesn't like to draw that. So I, I, I don't want to make him unhappy, but you know, the story is always the boss Mm. Uh, you know, when I was inking Iron Man, and I still to this day don't understand how I got that that gig twice, I hated doing anything technical. I hated rulers and uh, French curves and compasses and circle templates and all of that crap. I found it so boring. Uh, and But yet, I had two very long runs on Iron Man, which as far as I know, were considered fairly successful. And I just somehow, you know, people say, oh, I love the way you ink metal. And, and I'm thinking, if you only knew, if you only knew how much I didn't like doing technical stuff. But, you know, I did what I had to do because that was what was demanded of me by the story. And then what the penciler's demands were by the story. You know, sometimes you can't always do what you want to do as an artist. Mm -hmm. But... You know, if, if as a, you know, getting back to the hyphenate thing, uh, one of the things that hyphenates do is they, they write stories that they want to draw, but the collaboration is very, you know, it's, it's not, it's not confrontational. It's not, well, I'm going to tell the story I want. And I don't give a shit what you like to draw. So, right. It's an interesting, it's kind of what, well, I guess what I'm trying to say is um, the story is always the boss, but you do what you got to do to tell the story. Hopefully. I mean, that's part of being a professional too. Right. So do you have uh, not to put you on the spot, but did you have a oh, pref whiner. preferred, <laughs> a preferred artist slash writer of that era or of any era? Was there one that you said that guy was really good at it? He was, he, he's at the top of that list of guys that I worked with. Uh, yeah. Guys that you or worked just in with. general. Guys that you worked with, or maybe even in general, but let's go with guys that you worked with. That let's start with that. Well, I love I, Archie Goodwin uh, is always going to be at the top of any list for me. Uh, Archie was a wonderful writer, wonderful guy, funny as shit, uh, great editor, uh, very very dedicated, um, and very smart about comics. But I like Denny. I like Denny's writing in general because it seemed to be a bit more adult and a bit more literary. Um, you know, he wrote comics the way I think he wanted to read comics for the most part. Whereas 
you know, I think a lot of guys who wrote more in the Marvel style were trying were trying to write towards a specific, you know, uh, template that was created by Stan and then expanded upon by Roy. Mm. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. Um, who else did I like? I actually liked Miller as a writer, but you know, Miller was putting movies was making movies on paper. Yeah. Um, who else did I like? Oh boy. Um, you are putting me on the spot a little bit, but you know, it's, it's funny when I broke into comics, I kind of stopped reading comics for the most part. Ah, okay. Um, I, I, I wasn't as absorbed in the totality of what was going on the way I was as a fan. I was absorbed by good work when it was done by my contemporaries. And in one of my old studios, I used to have a comic spinner rack hmm. that, that, you know, there were certain comics that I wanted to have access to because I could steal from them artistically. And when I, when I say steal from them, I mean, I can look at how guys I admire would solve a problem. And I think we all were like that. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. I was talking to Mark Chiarello the other day, who's uh, one of my best friends, one of the only guys I talk about comics with. And I told him that I saw a page uh, on the, on the internet. Uh, it was a page from Rip Hunter Time Master, which was a sixties a book. And Alex Toth illustrated, I think, I don't think he did more than six, maybe he did only four or five. But I was saying that I think that when Toth discovered markers around the, I guess in the late sixties into the seventies, when he was working exclusively with markers, um, I think the work suffered a little bit in that he was, he was dealing more with form rather than uh, texture and rendering and, and, and totes stuff even in the, in the older days when he's using traditional uh, inking tools uh, was still more about form and design, but there was a, a little bit more of an organic feel to it. It was brushy. Uh, there was more detail and it's not like the detail made it better. It just was more detail. And I know that one of totes influences was Noel Sickles and who Noel Sickles was a great comic book artist and a fantastic illustrator, a big fan of his and Toth was too. And I think Toth was influenced by Sickles, but Sickles didn't work with markers. And so that when, when Toth changed his tools, his style evolved and I don't necessarily think it evolved for the better. And I'm now trying to remember why I went down this weird street with Toth. But um, I think that a lot of work is the product of the times. And I think a lot of the writing of those days, um, I think, reflected a certain way to, to, tell, to tell comic stories that from a writing standpoint didn't interest me that much. I think Denny was just one of those guys who was all his outside influences were, were having, he wasn't, a, I don't think he was influenced by comics. He understood the medium and the form, but he's bringing book, you know, he's bringing uh, fiction and, and, and uh, from, from the page and from the screen uh, uh, to the dance. Right. And I, and I think that 
one of the reasons why his work stands up so well is it I think maybe it was a bit more grown up. Right. Not and not in a snobby way. Just it, it just kind of was. It it was a reflection partly of, of who he was or what he was thinking about at the time. He was just a little bit more of a I think even a lot of those creators during that coming up during that time, it wasn't this was a question I wanted to ask you was and we kind of we kind of spoke about it uh, on the last episode a little bit, but culturally, these these guys who were coming up, guys and women who were coming up at that time, as opposed to the '60s generation who were in the business of telling stories to engage kids in cheap entertainment, and they they built on it something so amazing and so so imaginative that it felt alive especially the marvel universe felt like this living organism because it you know everyone kind of connected and we know the, the story of that but now you had this generation who had kind of seen things happening around them the, the political climate of things more independent thinking where we want to build on these stories of of people we were raised like we grew up with peter and now we are peter's age telling what maybe Peter's feeling for the first time that that kind of time went together. And you think, I think of guys like uh, Jim Starlin as well, who came along and, and had something to say a little bit more layered kind of the way Denny did on his end. Was, was that part of it? Just that generation wanting to yeah. write that way? I, 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 well, I think, you know, you, uh, Starlin's an interesting example. I sometimes forget about Jim because I, I'm not, I was never a big fan of cosmic stories. Okay, yeah. Although, although look at what happened with Jim and, and Thanos and the Avengers. Yeah. You know, he was responsible in his own way for some of the most successful IP of all time. Right. But, you know, Jim was bringing that kind of mindset to his work. Right. Uh, I know that Carrie Bates, who is a friend of mine, good friend of mine still, one of my few comics friends. Um, Carrie always watched a lot of television and he watched a lot of movies. He was a monster James Bond fan. And he always would think about twists. He would always think about um, a certain thing that you can bring to a story that might take it up another level. Um, he was, of all the guys that I know who wrote, Carrie was always thinking about story and always learning from story. And, you know, the other thing that happened, too, I think it's important to know that in this, still in the 70s, a lot of editors were old school guys. I mean, Julie Schwartz always had a reputation as being like one of the best editors. You know, I, I'm not a big Julie Schwartz fan for a number of reasons. But professionally, Julie only knew how to tell a story one way. And, um, hmm. And it wasn't visually. Hmm. Um, I mean, think about it. Think of all the Julie Schwartz comics you've ever had that had phenomenal covers. You know, buy me covers. Covers that promised you, again, mm -hmm. a movie on paper. And then by the time you kind of got to the moment that was the cover moment, it was a small panel surrounded by a shitload of balloons. Mm. <laughs> you go, that, that's it? Even as a kid, I would go, that, that's it? Um, because Julie stuff, you know, Julie came from science fiction mm -hmm. and I think there was a lot of the, we need to explain everything school 
Whereas I think some of the other guys, and again, up next generation guys like Larry Hama and Al Milgram, mm. uh, their books were a standout, especially when they went over to Marvel. I think they weren't not, not standouts at DC, but these guys were, were smart. They were artists. They were influenced by what was what was happening at the time. I think as editors, they had great taste. Mm. Um, both Larry and Al had great taste. And I know I don't know if Al was as voracious a reader as Larry was, but Larry was a voracious reader. And I think Larry, in his own way, was a version of Denny. Mm. And he was bringing a lot of his outside influences to bear in the work that he did. And... Um, um, you know, I think that's why, it, in a sense, he was a great choice for G.I. Joe. Well, for starters, um, he was in the military, but um, Larry Larry wasn't doing what I would call self-generating comics. You know, that worked. We're going to do more of that. I mean, Larry was, I think, trying, if he wasn't trying to push the envelope, I think he was trying to gently... Uh, you know, bump into the edge on the envelope. I mean, maybe that's not the best metaphor, the most uh, elegant metaphor. But, <laughs> you know, he was he was trying to do different stuff. And again, Larry had all these outside influences, which I think he felt in the work. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I think that's what the 70s was about. It was about evolution. Yeah. Uh, in the beginning, especially for Marvel, as we all know from all the books that have been written, you know, once Marvel got successful there was a mandate to put out as many marvel comics as possible and just flood the racks so you know you had a lot of i would say second-rate marvel comics that were coming out in those days um no offense to anybody but you know i was a big marvel reader and uh fewer titles meant better work i thought yeah now yeah it had it had to be what it had to be but, um, you know, sometimes you're literally just trying to get pages done and get, get you know, get the books done and get them out on the stands. Um, it was very competitive in those days, you know, between Marvel and DC. Um, you know, and DC from the get-go had better distribution than Marvel did. But to Marvel's credit, they wound up uh, creating something that the fans really liked. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think... I'll use this metaphor, you know, I love ice cream, but if I, if I ate two pints of it a day, every day for a concentrated period of time, I'd get bored with it and tired of it. Right. And I think, I think that's what happened with Marvel. Whereas with DC, you know, DC did a lot of stuff by the numbers and each editor, you know, each editorial office had a style. I mean, I always thought that Murray Boltonoff's books were really boring, but apparently Murray's stuff really sold well. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't attention getting. It wasn't glamorous. Uh, Murray generally wanted to work with pros. He didn't want to work with the young guys. But you know, his books were a non-issue. It's almost like Murray wasn't there. Hmm. He, he, he garnered so little attention. Uh, Julie, because he was bombastic, and he was editing the, the key titles for the line. You know, he was getting a lot of attention, but I think a lot of those comics were fairly boring unless they were Batman comics written by Denny for the most part. Uh, even Julie understood that uh, really good artwork 
dramatic artwork, exciting stuff was part of who Batman was. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as much as I like Kurt Swan as a, as a man and as an artist, uh, I remember Elliot Magan and Carrie Bates telling me that they were doing everything they could to try and get Kurt to step out of his comfort zone as a penciler. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we talked about this last time. It's like, you know, if you if you've if you've ever seen Kurt Swan's pencils, you know how truly gifted a draftsman he was. And he had a lot of bad inking over the years. And a lot of good inking, a lot of bad inking. But the problem with Kurt's stuff, in my eyes, in my opinion, and it's not even a humble opinion, it's my opinion, hmm. is Kurt couldn't light something if his, if his life depended on it. I think I told you, I said, that everything that Kurt draws takes place at noon. Yeah, yeah. You know, where it's washed with light. You know, yeah. there's so much light. And that's boring. You know, another guy who was really good as a writer whose work I liked, especially on the war books, was Robert Kaniger. Because Kaniger had one, and, and every story you've ever heard about Kaniger is true. I think he was just out of his mind. But, and hated kids. <laughs> but he understood something very important about comics and storytelling, which was drama is compelling. He understood drama. He didn't, it was more than movement. It was drama. And, you know, and Kubert, when Kubert was editing Kaniger, Kubert uh, would cut probably a half, half of the dialogue that Kaniger wrote. And so, those comics were very dramatic and they weren't overly written. And, but still at the core of it, Kaniger did understand that. And I think sometimes drama kind of got lost in comics. I think it's kind of come back depending upon who's doing the comics today or in, or, or in the late in the nineties or the eighties or the seventies that, you know, and I and I going back to Miller once again because he was very significant. Yeah, Frank understood drama. Yeah, and he brought that to to the work, and he also brought emotionality to the work. And I think the reason why Denny's stuff was so good is I think he was a bit more of a grown up than the rest of us, and I think he understood emotionality. Um, I think Steve Gerber understood that. Um, you know, characters, character, but it's not always drama. I mean, I, I, I have to, I'll admit, I'm not a big uh, Chris Claremont reader, and I don't know if there was a lot of drama in in his stuff, and especially in the X Men. I think maybe it was maybe more melodramatic, mm-hmm. you know, the way a soap is, but that doesn't mean it's not enjoyable, right? But, but, but real drama, real emotionality. Uh, if it's done by the right creators in comics, can still be incredibly powerful. Right. A lot of the, and this might be, you know, digging for more, but a lot of the things that were being created at that time or uh, retouched, if you will, so much of it is now the biggest thing ever. Like you brought up, you know, Jim Starlin and, and Thanos. I don't know if, I mean, people loved Infinity Gauntlet for sure. Comic book fans did, but I don't know if anybody thought that Thanos would be. And this may be hyperbolic, and people might yell at me, but a villain on the level of Darth Vader, like a household name, 
like Darth Vader is now, where you, you refer to the Thanos snap and everybody knows what it is. I don't know if anyone thought that would be the case with that character. And now you see things like Shang-Chi and Iron Fist is on television. All these these things that were sort of these cult areas of the comic universe where had cult followings are now hugely successful. What do you think it was of, of that time, just hypothetically, of course, that was making these things now be so um, powerful and, and also something that people are making a ton of money off of? I think there are about 19 questions in sorry, that question. I'm but sorry. No, 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 no. It's, it's funny. I'm just trying to be comic. Um, <laughs> I, I will say this. One of the things that I think people don't understand, um, and it doesn't mean they're not intelligent enough, is that especially in the 70s, I think a lot of stuff was thrown against the wall mm-hmm. to see if it's going to stick. Okay. You know, I think... Guys did what they were interested in doing. Mm-hmm. I think Starlin created what he created because that interested him. Okay. And then as and to the credit of, of, of the guys at Marvel Productions, they looked at what was in existence and they found a way to kind of uh, further develop it into some of this incredibly successful IP. You know, starting with Iron Man. Mm-hmm. Iron Man was always a middle of the pack title for, for Marvel. Right. It was never anybody's favorite. No. Never. No one's. I mean, <laughs> I liked Iron Man okay. I worked I worked on Iron Man. I mean, <laughs> I was paying I, your I, bills. I literally inked hundreds of pages of Iron Man comics. Um, I think when Denny wrote when I think Denny wrote it in the eighties, I think he brought something more adult and dramatic to it. But Iron Man was never the most important character in the Marvel movie universe until Robert Downey Jr. said yes. Right. And then what he did is he took this character, he took the bones of the character, but they didn't reinvent it. Let me say that again. They didn't reinvent Iron Man. They took what was invented Mm -hmm. and expanded on it. Right. And then, you know, you want to know what good actors do. Well, there's a perfect example. You know, if you're a writer and then you get a Robert Downey Jr. to play that character, well, you know, it's like being Joe Montana throwing to Jerry Rice and you just know once the guy catches the ball, you got a touchdown. Right. That's kind of what happens with a lot of these things. I mean, um, the material is there. It's the it's it's about the execution, but then it's also about the casting. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's a very key component as to why a lot of this stuff works or doesn't work. Um, but in, in the day, though, I think everybody was just. Here's the thing. We all wanted to work in comics. Mm. We would do whatever it took to work in comics on a steady basis and get paid. Mm-hmm. You know, to be able to live in a way that was not glamorous or luxurious, mm-hmm. but we were able to make a living doing what we had tremendous passion for. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, I think okay. that makes sense. Yep. And then, and you know, and some ideas are good. Some ideas were lousy. Um, I think some ideas 
turned out to be better than maybe anybody ever knew. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a friend of mine who's an animation writer, a guy named David Wise, said it's really all about the execution. And and part of what Marvel created was this tremendous amount of material that was ripe to be developed and executed. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, they did it well. I mean, look, I liked the first Wonder Woman movie. I wasn't that crazy about the second Wonder Woman movie. <laughs> but... I loved every second that Gal Gadot was on the screen. Yeah. My, my wife, <coughs> pardon me, who hates superhero movies, <laughs> did not see Wonder Woman with me because I said, yeah, you don't want to go see that. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's all that, that, that crap you hate. <laughs> and, and then a number of her girlfriends said, have you seen it? Have you seen her? You know, they were talking about her. And she said, I think I'm going to go see it. And I said, okay. And she came out and she loved it. And I said, why? Because it's really not her kind of storytelling Mm -hmm. or story material. And she said, I loved her. Wherever she went, I wanted to be there. Whatever she did, I was interested. And I think, and the same is true for me. Um, Again, the merits of the movies aside, whether you're good or bad, She's she was just such a great fit. Yeah. Now I know there are a lot of people who say, well, the only Wonder Woman is Linda Carter, and I sort of get that. I grew, you know, I was around, but I think Gal Gadot brings sort of this X factor to it that takes it again. And Wonder Woman was never a successful comic book ever. DC had to keep publishing that, otherwise they would lose all their merchandising and licensing rights. Right. That was the only reason Wonder Woman wasn't canceled decades ago. Because right. to, keep those right, to keep those rights, they had to keep the book alive. And then, you know, look what happened. You know, they, they you know, made this movie and they, it was, you know, they were, first one was incredibly well done, I think, even with his shortcomings. The second one, not so much. But she was the reason why you went to go see it. In all of the movies that she's been in, in that movie universe, I agree with you. She's so, for somebody that, and this is the thing that's funny, when people... People always get up in arms when someone's cast for something. They did this to them. That person's not look doesn't look like blah 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 blah. And in her case, it was the same. She's not big enough. She's not muscular enough to be Wonder Woman. Is she taller? You know, she's too slim. And I can't imagine anybody else playing that character because she totally embodies. Even her the the just, the accent just seems correct. The look in her eyes, the slight, imperfect, perfect teeth, like it just seems it's spot on. And and even in the movies I didn't like, like you said, seeing her was it brought a certain level of joy because it's like, ah, this character lives. It's like even Christopher Reeve, when some of those horrible Superman movies, it's still him. Well, there's that factor, and I, we may have discussed this last time, but it's worth repeating. It's what I call the the Mitchell superhero test. <laughs> tell and me, you didn't tell simple, me this last time. Oh, okay. It's a very simple test. When you see the actor in the suit for the first time, mm-hmm. and you and there are only two responses, and they are, yep, nope. Well, when you see mm-hmm. Christopher Reeve in the costume for the first time, you go, yep. Yeah. You see uh, Linda Carter or Gal Gadot in the costume, you go, yep. Uh, Ryan Reynolds, who was an actor who I kind of like. I hated him as Green Lantern. He was a nope. Um, 
you know, Henry Cavill, when he shows up for the first time as Superman, you go, yep. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, and this is not popular, I hated every single Batman except for Ben, ben Affleck. I agree with you. I think he, he's the one that embodies see, it the most. You see Ben Affleck in the sort of what I call the fat Frank Miller Batman suit, which yeah. is very simple. Simplest cowl. Yeah. And you go, yup. And then after the yup, I said, I might have actually said it out loud in the movies. Gee, was that so fucking hard, you know, to actually sort of get it right? I mean, I know people like Michael Keaton. I know people like Val Kilmer. And, they didn't like uh, Michael Keaton when he got cast, though, right? It's I always, know, it's I always know. the it case. It was quite an uproar yeah. uh, because he wasn't, you know, physically imposing. Um, you know, Clooney was, I think, an interesting choice, but the movie was, was awful. Mm-hmm. I did not like Christian Bale at all. Hmm. And it's weird if you watch those movies, I don't think... Christopher Nolan is that interested in Christian Bale as Batman either. I think, I think you're right. Interested in, I think he's interested in everything around uh, that. I but think then you're when, right. you see, when you see when you see Ben Affleck for the first time as Bruce Wayne, you go, "Yup." And when you see him in the suit, you go, "Yup." And also the other thing is that I think the bat the I was going to say Batfleck, and I, I I see him referred to that way uh, online. Uh, the first Batman fight you see in, with him, you go, how hard has this been? How hard has it been to sort of do a good Batman fight? Well, obviously it was pretty fucking hard because it took them, what, eight movies to get to it or something like that? <laughs> but, you know, then there's the weird stuff. Like, I never thought I would have liked Jason Momoa as, as Aquaman. Yeah. And then I went, yep. The problem is like, the movie was a nope. Yeah, me too. But, but but I think I think he was a yup, and I also think when the, when all these guys are together as the Justice League, I thought they were really good. I just didn't uh, like I the Flash. That was the only one that was a nope for me. It wasn't crazy. He about seemed it. he seemed like he was in a different movie. I yeah. think. Yeah. Um, and I just don't like the sort of. Uh, that's because I'm old. Uh, the the whole idea of you know some sort of you know, extra special goofball kid. I think the only time that ever works in super, superheroes for Spider-Man. Right. But Spider-Man was created to be a teenager. Um, but yeah, it's really that simple. I think it's, it's yup or no. And, um, and if it's a yup, you just are, you're, you're, you've signed on board with that actor as that character. That's why Christopher Reeve is always worth watching no matter which Superman movie you're watching. Yeah. And I thought three and four were really pretty lousy. And I have I have issues with two, mm-hmm. but I never have any issues with him. So when – just a little tangent here. How are you doing with time, by the way? Are you okay? I have I'm, – I'm good. Okay. I'm very good. Okay. Um, because you used to go to movies so frequently, do you remember who you saw Superman the movie with? Uh, who personally I went – I saw it with? Yeah. Um, it was. Did it happen to be anybody who was working in comics at the time? You know, I I think the answer is I don't think so. Okay. Um, <laughs> I was doing film journalism in New York as kind of a little bit of a side gig mm-hmm. when I was doing comics. And one of the things that was great about that was I was on every screening list in town. Ah, oh, that's awesome. And when they when Superman uh, was screened for the uh, the, the press, the critics, the writers, the, the I think the phrase used to be opinion makers. Hmm. Uh, now today, I think it's influencers. Yeah, that's right. Opinion makers. 
Uh, I saw it at, I think, one of the biggest screens in Manhattan with a packed house. Wow. And, you know, it kind of took my breath away. I mean, it's, it's weird because that movie is a little tone deaf, but, you know, you have the early... The pre the pre Krypton version of the story, where they're kind of telling the exposition of the character in Metropolis, then you have Krypton, which is this very sort of almost LSD induced sort of visual style, but very dramatic. It's all very Shakespearean almost. Yes. And then and then you have you have the Glenn Ford Americana part of the movie, which by the way was shot in Canada, mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, and, and that and that was sort of very classical. And then you have the actual, you know, the, the majority of the movie, which um, is somewhat unnecessarily comic, mm. you know, almost to the point where it's silly. Um, but Christopher Reeve wasn't silly. Christopher Reeve knew what movie he was in. And I remember when he first came up to the offices one day and he was oh. meeting people, um, he was this very pleasant, polite easygoing guy who was very curious to learn everything he could about the character. Hmm. And, and, and he was big time dedicated to doing the character. Right. And so even though you had Miss Tessmacher and Otis running around Hmm. in that part of the movie, he, even with those characters, he was never silly. Right. Um, And that, that goes to the power of why he was so great as, as, as Superman. Um, uh, by the way, I don't know if you guys know this or you're listening, but Richard Don absolutely loved him. You know, he, I think I got the impression, he didn't say it, but I got the impression that he thought very paternally towards Christopher Reeve. It's almost like it was his kid. Hmm. And in a sense, he, you know, he was because he was a complete unknown until they made the movie together. But he absolutely was crazy for Christopher Reeve. Um, just from a talent standpoint, you know, he just thought he was the greatest guy. He was easy to work with. He, he really loved making the movie with him. Hmm. Yeah, that's so that's so fun to hear people's uh, experience that they they lived up to what we all kind of hope the joy of the, the way the movie makes us feel. They had that sort of joy working with the, the people. I know it was hard for Richard Donner to make that movie. That's why the second one is pieced together the way it is. But um yeah, it was it's it still holds up. I I always prefer seeing Christopher Reeve fly behind a green screen than I do uh, the CGI versions of flying. I don't know what it when I see him grab that helicopter. I know there's wires and all that stuff, but I I believe it for some reason. I believe well, it more. This is one of my great rants when I'm talking to my pals about movies, especially these days, and I won't rant it up too much. But real <laughs> has a very tangible and palpable effect on the viewer mm-hmm. you know when you look at the old james bond movies for example and there are spectacular stunts in there well that shit was actually happening and it was yeah. dangerous and as an audience member if you understand that it was dangerous it becomes more exciting and or more suspenseful as an audience Nowadays, when you look at anything that's generated with CG, no matter how spectacular it is, you go, well, it's just all bullshit. Right. It's just all, you know, that's the collective and, and effective work of 100 workstations right. around the world. Mm-hmm. 
But when you <laughs> when you try and figure something out on a set, uh, it just it, it, it has a, it, it it's just more it's just more exciting to watch because it's real. Yeah, I get you what know? you mean. I, it's, it's, Go back and watch a lot of spectacular movies from the sixties, big movies where the lots of extras and everything. You know, um, I don't know if you've ever seen The Longest Day, which was, uh, you know, this great all-star retelling of D-Day made in the early 60s. Well, there are scenes where you're in the cockpit of a a Messerschmitt strafing the beach and it's flying over the beach and you see literally hundreds of guys running for cover during the strafing. And you go, wait a second, those are all real. Every one of those guys had to be put in a costume. Every one of those guys got a hot lunch. Every one of those guys had to be wrangled by a, a second and a third assistant director. Um, it's one of those things where the realness of it makes it more exciting. <laughs> and and that's, that's, you know, I think that explains why you felt the way that you felt. Yeah. I, I mean, kids today look, oh, that looks so fake. It doesn't look real. And I don't know if it's because of the way my eyes have been trained to watch that and accept that as real. Whereas when I watch, you know, a lot of today's movies, I go, that's not real. That looks so silly. It's something as simple as, you know, Jim Henson's uh, Ninja Turtle costumes that are clearly not the most um, easy things to move in at all. Very limiting. But you knew there was someone in that suit doing that. Whereas if you watch a you know, the newer versions of these things, you can clearly see that's just someone, someone drew that. There's no one there. Well, it, it really comes down to this. Real is best. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, if you watch the John Wick movies, yeah. Keanu Reeves is doing almost everything that that character does. Yeah. And you those feel movies, it. Yeah. They're more exciting because of it. Yeah. Um, it, it it's interesting, you know, I'm sort of hooking it up to comics a little bit. And I think I've talked about this maybe not with you, but, you know, one of the things that I I don't care for with comics today is the fact that there used to be a dominating voice on the page artistically, and that used to be the penciler. Mm. And then, you know, sometimes if the right penciler and inker are together, the sum of their work creates almost a better dominant force. Well, today, the colorist is the dominant force. The colorist has so much has so much control over a page that when it's done, it may be impressive, mm-hmm. but it lacks, it's, it's not idiosyncratic. You know, you go, well, I think that's Howard Chaikin, but is it Howard Chaikin? I think that's Walt Simonson, but that because the colorist now, I mean, to be a colorist, you almost have to be uh, an, an excellent painter mm. and have those kind of, you know, sophisticated art skills. Whereas colorists were, being a colorist was not that sophisticated a craft at one time. Mm. It was a craft, but it, it wasn't sophisticated. Now, because of uh, digital effects and all the things that are available to a colorist, I mean, you go, who owns the page? Who did the page? Who, who's, who's really the creator? Well, the same is true in film, where, like I said, you have 100 people all over the world at workstations creating effects, which for the most part are very good. Yeah, You know, um, I, I can't fault that. But it's not the same as watching a Ray Harryhausen movie with all the faults inherent in a Ray Harryhausen movie. Because what you're seeing is a hang on a second here. No problem. Um, you're, you're seeing 
one set of hands determining everything. And you feel Ray Harryhausen's personality in the effects. And so it's different. It's just different. And I think, and I think we talked about this last time, but it's worth repeating. The one comic that I've seen the last five years that I think proved to me that really good comics can still be done. And I think there's a lot of good work being done today. I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to dump on today's professionals, but it was the Batman Elmer Fudd story that yeah. Lee Weeks yeah. uh, penciled and inked. And I think it was Laverne Kinzersky, uh colored it simply and minimally. And then it was, I think Tom King wrote it and it was a great comic. And Mark Chirello and I always say, man, if comics were that good all the time, I'd still be a big fan. <laughs> Because I literally, if we were going to do a visual essay over that, I could walk you through that and say, this is why this is good. I'd say, look at that. Look at, look at the subsidiary characters. Look at the acting. Look, they're in the scene. They're not just drawn. They're not standing around. They're not posing. They're living in that. Uh, it's compositional. There's lighting. There's a great set. You know, uh, there's some of the wide shots in that. Uh, I think they're in a bar. And you go, well, God damn it, that's a real bar. Right. That's not something phony that did not exist. The way that was drawn and executed is it still exists. It, it actually exists. That's the thing that when you watch old Hollywood movies that bothers me is certain studios had lousy art departments. Mm. And characters would walk into a set and you go, yeah, five guys put that together last night. Yeah. And then you have studios like RKO where one of the things that I don't know if they get enough credit for is their art department was great. You know, have you ever seen the old original thing from another world, the old Howard Hawks picture? No, I have not. Ever seen it? No, I have not. Uh, You have no excuse. You've got to see it. I mean, I'm sure you've seen the Carpenter version, uh, the John Carpenter version. If you haven't seen that, you should see that too. Um, (laughs) But one of the things about the original thing, which is my favorite movie, um, when they go to the North Pole and they go to this uh, scientific expedition uh, uh, complex, everything looks like it had been there for a long time. Everything looks lived in. Everything looks like somebody designed it for their own purpose or efficiency or comfort. It's not just the set. It looks lived in. Yeah, it looks like it was there before the movie existed. And I think that's one of the things you do or don't get in comics sometimes is that, you know, some guys are really good with creating a setting for a story that looks like it was there before. I mean, and, that, and then and I believe we talked about this. You have guys like John Romita Jr., who one of his strengths is he uses weather in his stories. Yeah. Very effective. Weather is great in any kind of storytelling. And um, Tim Sale, when you look at his stuff, um, Tim's settings for the storytelling are based on a reality. They're not based on just, you know, putting a chair in a corner, or, you know, intersecting geographic planes to create walls and ceilings. Right. You know, Tim has a way to make stuff look lived in and almost uh, dilapidated sometimes. Right. Uh, it's, it's very important. It's very, you know, it, it, well, I guess what I'm getting at is all of this stuff is related. Mm. You know, it's not just comics. Yeah. You know, 
authenticity, real, something that even if it's ephemeral, it's ta- it feels tangible. Yeah. I this guess is why, and, and this is not, probably not a very popular idea, is this is why Jack Kirby's stuff isn't as impressive to me now as it was when I was a kid. Okay. Because, you know, although to his credit, in that, that golden run of Fantastic Fours, um, you know, the New York that he drew on paper was pretty palpable. But the, the sort of the unreality of Jack's work hmm. um, doesn't quite play for me now. It's exciting. It's energetic. If I was going to, you know, we had the Mount Rushmore conversation last right, time. Right, right, right. Jack Kirby's on Mount Rushmore. Sure, yes. You know, but the way Wally Wood should be on Mount Rushmore, because when you look at the settings of his of his comics, even his science fiction stuff, it all looks kind of real. Mm-hmm. It all looks like it could happen or take place in that in that panel, in that setting. I see. Um, it's, it's very important. Yeah. I want to go back to something that you, you've mentioned numerous times in both conversations we've had, but I'm really interested to hear, especially because I know how uh, happy the memories make you feel. Tell me a little more about Archie Goodwin. What was something that um, you learned from him that you always take with you? It's a very interesting question. Well, I think Archie was a guy who took things very seriously, but he didn't take anything too seriously. Mm-hmm. I, he showed me that you can be dedicated, um, but not be an asshole. And, mm-hmm. and what I mean by that is, you know, some guys are so dedicated, they only see one way of doing things. And unless everything goes according to plan or the, or the structure, their structure for something, you know, that, that it's, it's unacceptable. I think, I think Jim Shooter had a kind of strict way of thinking about comics. I don't necessarily think it was bad, but it was only his way. Mm-hmm. And I think Archie was always open to be surprised. And as an editor, I mean, I, I think he was the best editor there ever was. I mean, somebody, some people might say Harvey Kurtzman and, and Harvey was great. Stan, of course, um, but I think Archie was, in my in my experience, let's put it that way, the best because he had ideas about how to do it. He had tremendous craft. He had great talent. He also enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. I don't think he, if he got jaded or jaundiced, it was maybe towards the very end. Um, but he he sort of brought a sense of wonder to it. He was always very boyish. But also, he created stuff and he created opportunities for fun things to happen, you know. And I guess to, to, to whittle it down to one thing, he was very open-minded about how to do his work. And I think that there were two kinds of editors. I think there was, and this is certainly true in the older times, some guys wanted it to be, it was their way or no way or the highway. Mm-hmm. And I think um, certainly with Archie, I think Orlando was like this. Jordana was. Um, they were like Archie, they, you're saying? Yeah, they were, I think, open minded to, to experiment and to play and see what happened. Right. Um, you know, the other thing is this. Everything was a lot simpler in my time. I think I've told you this story where I remember being on a subway train with, I think, 
uh, Howard Chaikin and Len Wein and maybe a couple of other guys. Um, it was the end of the day. We're just taking a train out to Queens where we would all then go in our own separate directions. And then I think somebody said, hey, let's do this this thing. And, oh, yeah, we can do it with, with that thing. And, and we can do the stuff. And, well, let's run it by somebody the next day and see if they'll do it. And then sometimes you walk into somebody's office and say, I want to do this. And they say, okay. Right. It wasn't that big a deal. Right. And now my understanding is everything is a very big deal. Everything has to, I think, run a gauntlet of some kind to be approved. Or a gauntlet, an editorial gauntlet maybe, or a marketing editorial gauntlet where they say, well, maybe this is worth doing. Hmm. And so what happens is the spark of the creativity somehow gets dimmed because of the process. Yeah. I can see what you mean. Yeah. And and I think that to to get to, to sort of get back to your question about Archie, Archie always tried to keep things sparking. He always tried to keep the energy up, the creativity up, the enthusiasm up, you know, because here's the simple truth. We all got into comics for one reason or another, but one of the reasons we all got in the comics was we wanted to have fun. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, as I've said before, and I uh, maybe other guys you talk to, comics is not an easy job. You know, oh, sure, I, I would start working at 11 o'clock in the morning, but right. then I, I might stop working at 10 o'clock at night. You know, uh, people are out going out on the weekends and I'm going, well, I got I got a deadline. I've got to meet it. I'm, I'm not going anywhere. I mean, I know I've had a couple of deadlines where I literally did not leave my apartment for three days. I may not have even, you know, like got gotten taken a shower for three days. Um, it, it's not like the way my parents grew up where you got up in the morning, you took a shower, you went to work, you did your job, you came home, you had dinner, you watched TV, and then you started all over again. Yeah. Now, that was routine, and I guess if you commuted a lot, it was a grind, but comics could be fun, but also comics oftentimes were a grind. Uh, Matt Smith, Matthew Dow Smith, who I used to share studio space with, every once in a while here I would say to one another, because there were about four or five of us in the studio, leave me alone, I'm in the zone. Yeah, right, yeah. You know, you just... (laughs) You know, and, and that doesn't happen enough, but it's kind of like an actor knowing that they're nailing a part. Just shut the fuck up. Get away from me. Go, go do something. I'm in the zone. Yeah, yeah. And we, I think everybody lived to one degree or another to be in the zone. Yeah. It, That's why creative people do what they do. Yeah. And, and, and the way you were describing it, meeting that deadline, like comics – are a lot more fun to read than they were to 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 make in that grind of it. But overall, it's always so nice to hear that uh, everything surrounding it, like just a train ride like that, for you guys to have that sort of conversation. And who knows what which character came out of it? Because so many of those of that of your generation created the next wave of characters who are equally as, if not more, popular than what had come before. But I was going to ask that about the the editorial aspect of that era, if, and I guess you did answer it, but today it feels like because these things are so corporatized IPs, there's a, 
there's an end game that needs to be met for the corporation to have the character represent a certain thing, make sure we're doing this because that's going to sell and target this audience where maybe that was happening in, in your time too because editors then had you know their vision of what Superman would be. And if it was this editor, it had to be his way. But then at the same time with, with Marvel, like you guys were just saying, hey, can we try this thing? And maybe there, there wasn't as much of a precious corporatization of it that you could say, yeah, you, let's, let's try making them do that. And it, did, did you find more freedom? Well, I think the answer to what you were saying is yes. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'll give you two quick examples of how things kind of worked. I think when Jerry Conway created the Punisher, he was just creating a new opponent. Right, right. He wasn't creating this character that was going to be that character. Right. You know, it's like, all right, well, I'm going to create this guy. And so then the Punisher was born, and his version of the Punisher and the version of the Punisher that most people know about are almost two different animals. Sure. Uh, and when Len created Wolverine, mm-hmm. I think it was in a Hulk. Right. And he had that goofball yellow costume and, you know, just looks silly to me anyway. Um, I think Glenn was just creating a character because he wanted to create a character. Right. Just like when he created Lucius Fox, who I guess wound up being played by Morgan Freeman. Um, he was a character that he felt was, I guess, necessary to writing Batman and to tell it to doing that kind of storytelling. No one in their right mind had any idea it, that any of this stuff would matter. You know, we knew that Spider-Man mattered. We knew that Superman mattered. Batman mattered. Right. Um, you know, if a character had a TV show, that that they kind of mattered. But it really wasn't until, you know, again, going circling back to Iron Man, middle of the pack character for the most part had had its moments. I, I think I was part of one of those moments because I was part of the Denny O'Neill storyline where Tony was drinking and he hit bottom. And, but you have no idea if any of that stuff is going to develop into anything. Now today, the IP is so precious because you go, well, if we do this like this and we have diversity and we have, uh, you know, it, it, it plays into this and it does that. I mean, there's all of these sort of, I, I guess boxes to check with a lot of stuff. Whereas in the old days, it's like, well, this sounds like fun. Let's do it. Yeah. Because in the back in the day, it didn't matter. All that mattered was writing the stories, drawing the stories, getting the stories printed, and the stuff coming out on a, mo- a monthly basis. So do you, that's all that mattered. Do you think that in a it's necessary to change? Like, of course, it's necessary to change with the times, but as far as telling stories, do you feel that it was it's a better way to approach it to say the story is the boss as opposed to um, what we saw on the news is what should dictate our story? Well, I don't know. I think the story is always going to be boss telling an interesting story. Yeah. And an interesting story is always generated with interesting characters. I always say, you know, my, my regular friends hear this all the time. The, the three most important things to audiences everywhere, all the time, in any medium, are character, character, character. Yeah. You know, do you walk away thinking how great the plots were for any of these superhero movies? They're all gibberish. If you break they it are. down, if you break it down, yeah. 
It's the characters you, know, you fall in you love gotta with. You got to go yeah. to the place to do the thing to stop the guy. Yeah, yeah. That, that's what it is. Who gives a shit? What's the, <laughs> I still think, I mean, it's, 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 the, it's the vehicle to keep the characters in motion. But it's what the characters do and who the characters are that you take out of the theater. Look, I defy anybody. And I'm talking to everybody who's possibly listening to me at this moment <laughs> to come up with a better moment than the shawarma restaurant scene in the end titles of the first Avengers movie. That's the greatest superhero moment of all time. Because they're sitting around a table, they're eating, and they're fucking exhausted because they just saved the world. Now, I don't know. I really don't remember any of the machinations of any of those plots. The last two Avengers movies, I don't have a clue in hell what was going on. All I know is I was invested in the characters. I was invested in the actors as those characters. And that's all that mattered. You know, when when we see Steve Rogers at the end of the final Avengers movie, and I, I don't know if I should get any more specific because someone may not have seen it. Yep. I can't I can't believe that they haven't if they listen to this podcast. Yeah, exactly. But very few moments in movies, much less comic movies, are more potent than that. Mm. And it was all character. That's right. You know, when Robert Downey Jr. goes through what he goes through, and we'll, you know, there's nothing more potent than that. You know, the connections of those characters and those dopey costumes, because they ultimately are dopey. People mm-hmm. don't dress like that in the real world. They don't wear capes. Mm-hmm. But if they work as human beings in a real and genuine way, then everything else is irrelevant. You can get away with it. Yeah, you can get away with it's it. Not about, it's not even getting away with it. It's just that the thing is that people like to invest in people. That that's that's the thing is that the 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 silliness of this this ridiculous far fetched plot, people fighting with a magician and an Iron Man and a kid in a spider suit in the middle of Manhattan, it's 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 a comic book come to life for sort of, so for nerds like for like us growing up seeing these things like our childhood boom it's it's real people but all of those people matter to you in a, in a certain way and you appreciate them getting together like you're inve- like you said i'm invested in Stephen strange i know something about him oh yeah I, I'll, I'll tell you i'll give you I'll, I'll give you a specific two specifics when i saw the superman movie for the first time and he capped he catches lois midair yeah and he says to her he said don't worry i've got you and she goes you've got me who's got you yeah yeah iconic absolutely iconic and then but richard donner said and I think this is fairly well known, but the whole movie was about after he turns the world around, which is completely idiotic and stupid yeah. and, you know, who believes it. But when he drops down in the frame, the camera's inside the car next to Lois and she basically wakes up and he says, hi. That for, that for Donner was the movie. Right. He says, if that scene didn't work, then he felt that the movie wouldn't work. Now, I think that's oversimplifying things, but that was the moment that mattered to him. And the fact that, you know, Superman loved Lois and saving Lois was what really mattered. You know, you could take that in any movie. It doesn't have to be a superhero movie where someone saves the woman or the, or the man or the person that they love. Yeah. You know, 
Um, that's that's what that's what we remember. Yeah, that, that's a that's a good uh, reference actually, because as you were describing it, I could see it. I've seen that movie many times. One of my favorites, of course, but. I could see him doing that, and it, it does. It means so much. Every little thing that he did, even the the way he made it somewhat believable that you can that the same person can occupy two different people with the shoulders slouched to him standing upright. The the little and wasn't of, that a great wasn't that a great moment where it, you literally he grew from Clark into Superman. It was so good. It, it's it's just it's I don't know if. Because, you know, nowadays, especially in comics, they're doing away with secret identities. They're just throwing them pretty much out the window because it's, I don't know if it's just the, the, the thing to do now. It's easier to tell stories this way. But in that moment, you can see the value of it. You can see why it would be something so ridiculous and far-fetched could be believable. And he pulled it off, it, like, with perfection, total perfection. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, that's a great reference. It... It's again, human beings are interested in human beings. Yeah, you're right. And how many movies can you think of where the complexity of the plot was the thing that you loved the most about the picture? There, there, there are some, but they, it doesn't hold up to a movie. They, they don't come to mind. They don't come to mind right away. Um, you know, one of the reasons why the, the original version of the thing and Carpenter's the thing are two of my favorites is it's just one of the great stories. Yeah. Which is, you know, this alien gets gets frozen in the ice and then get, gets out of the ice and what's going to happen. Right. Uh, it's very immediate. Well, and then, of course, you know, there's a reason why Jaws is Jaws because it's just one of the great stories of all time. <laughs> you know, it's so great, you go, well, why didn't somebody think of that 30 years earlier? But the story of Jaws, which is... A shark attacks a New England town. That's the plot. There is no more plot. And but the story is how three very disparate guys who all have a relationship to this shark wind up getting along and discovering each other as as people and bonding. Mm-hmm. Or and or or not, you know. I mean, you know, Quint is obsessed and you know. They've already bonded with Quint, so they don't agree with it, but they get it. But again, is there a simpler story than Jaws? Hmm. I don't think so. That's great, anyway. It's it's still it's always about those characters, you know. I mean, you can take any movie from any genre and, and or any comic book. When you get invested in the characters, you know. I mean, I don't know if you watch the Daredevil TV show. Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, I loved it. I loved it. And but the best scene in the whole show was when Daredevil and Elektra are in the stairwell, and they're surrounded by seven thousand ninjas, and they all they know they're going to die, and they're talking about maybe going to Europe and Paris, and they, they that you know he says you're crazy, but I'm more alive with you than if if I'm not with you. It was a love story. The whole all that whole season was that love story. Yeah. I don't, you know, all of the stuff that was going on with the, with, with the, the, I can't even describe it. I can't even remember it. But all I know is when Electra showed up and it was about their romance, that was, that was absolutely gold standard storytelling. And I, it goes to my point. It's always about character. Right. And if it's, about, and when it starts to become about, I mean, plot, I mean, 
plot is boring. <laughs> it's it's it helps Except move a, the characters yeah, maybe along. Maybe a murder mystery. Okay, yeah. But. Yeah. But but in those ones, you, you you could be watching something strictly for the plot, and the characters can be interchangeable from show to show. But it, it going back to Daredevil, the the whole Vincent D'Onofrio character, seeing him mull over a, a, a painting, and wondering what he's thinking about and how that thing makes him feel, where that comes from, is what really invests us into this villain who we we understand. In a way, we understand where his his motivations and come from. Well, again, going back to what we talked about earlier, now we're sort of paying off all these things mm-hmm. we started earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's casting. It's yeah. it's getting the right guy. Right. Uh, I saw a picture of somebody on Facebook this weekend who physically looked like the kingpin, the way John Romita drew the kingpin back in the day. I mean, he was just like really bulky. Mm-hmm. But he looked, he was a human equivalent of a John Romita drawing. Um, but Vincent D'Onofrio was the perfect kingpin because he could bring all that other dimensionality uh, in the performance. And again, it was the performance. It was not the text. Going back to the whole thing about old yeah, comics, how they were right. overwritten. It's, you know, a director friend of mine, you know, has done this a couple of times after a scene where it's just a lot of, exp- it's like maybe emotional exposition. And he and, and say, well, let's do one more, but don't say the dialogue. Think it. Now, the writers probably never used that take, but I never forgot that little anecdote because sometimes the most important moment that you can have, certainly in a movie and TV, not so much on paper, although good comic book artists can find that moment, is it's all what's in the eyes. Hmm. It's all what they're thinking and feeling. And mm. there's some guys who are able to, on paper, have those moments. And I still think that's 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 always kind of the goal. Yeah. To keep it simple and keep it emotional and, and dramatic. Keep it human. Be real. Yeah. yeah. So as we as we wrap up, I won't take too much more of your time, but I want to ask you this question as we wrap up. Um, sure. You you directed King Cohen. Um, I did. Who was the King Cohen of comics? Oh, who's the Larry Cohen of comics? Yes. Wow, that's a really interesting question. No one has ever asked me that question. Wow. Because basically at his heart, Larry was a maverick. Mm -hmm. And so who's, who's a really maverick guy? I'm going to say, and, and, and ask me tomorrow, I may have a different answer. Yeah, yeah, I'll ask you again. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I may need to think about this for, you know, for a while. But I would say Wally Wood was okay. the Larry Cohen of his day. Wally, I call him Wally. Everybody, everybody calls him Woody. But Woody sort of needed to do things his way. He was, you know, when he came on board at Marvel to do Daredevil, God, man, talk about overwriting some of the. I've seen some of those originals, and oh my God, there's no room for the artwork. Um, I don't think Woody liked the way Stan worked. Mm. You know, I think you know there's a lot of there's been a lot of documentation that you know Stan and and the artist would come up with sort of a hey let's have Daredevil fight so and so and maybe they do a couple of things like this, mm. and then the artist has to sort of plot out the story 
visually on the page and Stan would come in and dialogue it. And I don't think Woody cared for that way of working. And then, so the Maverick part of Woody is that, you know, he goes to, you know, Tower Tower Books or Tower Press. And I'm not sure, I, I don't know very much about the origin of the, the Tower comics and Thunder Age and stuff like that. I don't know if he was approached or they approached them. But, you know, Woody was basically making Woody comics with Thunder Agents. Uh, Sam Schwartz was the editor, but Woody, I think, was really the divining rod for the majority of that stuff they did at Tower. And those are pretty interesting comic books. You know, I think the, the Tower comics, especially the Thunder Agents and the subsidiary characters that got spun off, basically were, were pretty interesting. And they were, they were I liked those comics as a kid. Um, but it was sort of an example of Woody trying to do things his way. And that was always the way Larry did it. You know, Larry, I don't know if you put it in the movie. I mean, I only had 16, 17 hours of interview footage with Larry and the movie is like an hour and 42 minutes. Um, but he hated pitching. He said, especially modern day pitching, he said, in the old days, you go pitch a show to one guy and say, I want to do an episode where the Rat Patrol goes on this mission and here's sort of the, the hook for the episode. And they say, yeah, okay, go do it. Go write it. Now, he says, when you go and you pitch anything, whether it's an episode of something or you're pitching a movie, you have a dozen people all with legal pads. You know, they're all very well-dressed and they make a good presentation and they're all going to have opinions. And then Larry would say things like, yeah, what, what, what do they know about how to, how to tell a story, but they know how to be in an office and have an opinion. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, I'm not one of those people who believes that everybody who sits in an office who has this, has an office job is an idiot. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, you have to be pretty smart to get those jobs, but you might not be smart as a writer or as crafted as a writer in your thinking. So yeah, I would say Woody right now is my answer. He's the most like Larry Cohen. And that Woody was always a bit of a maverick. I like it. Yeah, that's good. Next time we speak, I'll ask you that question again and see who you who well, you. Well, next time we'll have more time to think about it, right? Yeah, that's right. I'll send you a list of. Uh, be prepared for this. Um, so, what you what you were working on pre COVID was the Wings Hauser uh, documentary. Is that correct? We, we actually had the idea for it during COVID. Okay. Okay. So that's and something then, that's and next then up. As COVID was starting to wind down, I've already. Uh, done seven hours of interviews with wings um, and we're getting ready to do a uh, kickstart for completion money. And I will let you know when we're getting ready for that. Um, Like I said, I've already pretty much shot everything I need to with wings in an interview context. Uh, We're probably going to do some stuff with him on location uh, of some of his films and where he grew up. And then we're gonna uh, we need to get a, we need to get some interviews with people who work with him because it's always nice to have that contrast, right? Um, you know, and one of the things that was so enjoyable about King Cohen was the uh, uh, he said he said thing, especially with Larry and Fred Williamson saying, "Well, no, I did this," and then Fred would say, "No, he didn't do that," and I did this, and Larry would say, "No, I did this," and it, it's sometimes nice if you can have that kind of back and forth going on. So, um, you know, we're, we're well into production on it, uh, but we will probably kickstart or uh, completion funds. 
And then uh, uh, True Believers, which is my documentary about the, the, the Blue Jean generation, my generation of comics, were start, you know, we prepared a pitch document and we're trying to go out and see if we can get, you know, support uh, maybe with the streamers because that's going to be a bigger project. Um, somebody once asked me, could you do it as a miniseries? And I said, I guess. Yeah. You know, I mean, because there are a lot of people who we're going to want to talk to. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's like a Ken Burns thing. We're talking about an era. Yeah. You know, it's not just a project or one person's life. It's an era. Yeah. And everybody has a story. They have their story to tell. Yeah. Just like with me, I have my version of that story, but other people have their version of that story. Same place, same time, same location. And there's so, and you know, you got what's happening at Marvel, what was happening at DC, um, just so many factors of that generational shift that, yeah, you could definitely make a miniseries on and almost zero in on particular, even particular people who are making things. It, yeah, it would be great. I'd love to see it as a miniseries. It would definitely work. Um, well, I guess I would too. I think it's a little daunting to think about something that big, but you know, when I did King Cohen, I said to my editor, I says, well, I'm not quite sure what, what we're going to do with whatever we were talking about. But then I always said, and I said it a lot, we'll figure it out. Yeah. It'll, it'll, what it, what it's meant to be, it will become for sure. And, it, and it's going to be great. Every house is built a brick at a time. That's right. I have I have such a wonderful time uh, speaking with you. I hope we can do it again soon. Uh, definitely, we have to talk about when when the Wingshauser Kickstarter begins. But if ever you want to come back on, feel free to message me. I'll message you, and we'll we'll keep this going. This is a blast. You know, time time does fly when we talk. So, uh, um, yeah, when we're getting ready to kickstart, I'll I'll get in touch, and maybe I can do a a little shameless self promotion. Absolutely, and I'd love to do a. A yup and a nope, back and forth rating system with you, just to go through all of the different, you know, maybe movies. You make the list. Yeah, I, I'm am ready to do it, and and it'll it'll. I mean, it'll take you longer to make the list than it will for us to do it. Yeah, no, but I'm sure I'm sure we'll have some fun stories along the way. Thank you so much, Steve. I really really appreciate it. I hope uh, hope everyone enjoyed these episodes that we've been able to do together. And please stay safe. Uh, I know you're in L.A., uh, California. I stay safe, whatever is happening over there, and we'll try to do the same here, and we'll talk soon. All right, thanks, Eric. It was my pleasure. Awesome.